This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 275th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the greatest leading ladies in the history of Broadway and my personal favorite. With a voice for the ages, she was a Tony winner in 2015 for The King and I and a Tony nominee on five other occasions. In 2005 for The Light in the Piazza, in 2006 for The Pajama Game, in 2008 for South Pacific, in 2012 for Nice Work If You Can Get It, and in 2014 for The Bridges of Madison County. And she may well pick up Tony Nom number seven later this month for her outstanding performance in the latest revival of Kiss Me Kate, which is playing at Studio 54 until June 30th. The incomparable Kelly O'Hara. Over the course of our conversation in O'Hara's dressing room at Studio 54, the 43-year-old and I discussed her unlikely path from Oklahoma City to Broadway and the immense impact that her Oklahoma City University voice teacher, Florence Birdwell, had on her along the way, why she bristled at being an ingenue in her early roles, even as she rose to prominence, and how she eventually learned to find her voice, so to speak. Why one of her four collaborations with the director Bartlett Shear, The Bridges of Madison County, meant so much to her, and why its premature closing broke her heart. Why she has chosen to follow her Tony win for The King and I, another collaboration with Cher, with another revival, Kiss Me Kate, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, <laughs> I was born and raised, well, born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, lived for three years in Broken Arrow, raised in Elk City, Oklahoma, and finished high school in Edmond, Oklahoma. And the reason for this is my father was a farmer. And he and my mother both came from Elk City and moved away for different types of work, uh, law school for a little bit, accounting, came back to farm when his dad got ill, and ended up going back to law school in his 40s, in which changed our lives, and we moved to Edmond so he could become a lawyer when I was 16. My mother was a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And so just read a little bit about your childhood growing up there. It sounds like, you know, the way you spent your time, the way you fit into the social hierarchy might surprise people. Can you share sort of what your what your days were like and whether you were, you know, the the cool kid or the geek <laughs> or whatever? You know, I, maybe we always reinvent our past, but I think if I was really being honest, I would say that I had a, a pretty nice childhood. Um, I had some tough times when I became very chubby, so I would say I was definitely not popular, and I felt pretty geeky at that time, probably between 10 and 13 very awkward stage. In fact, I just came across some pictures that were horrible. <laughs> I hope they never resurfaced. But then, you know, I think I, I can't complain too much. I had great friends. I had a, a great family and good support. Moving when I was a junior in high school after living one place my whole life 
was difficult until it was the best thing that ever happened to me. There was a great theater program there mm -hmm. and a great teacher and great friends. And so I'm glad about that. But at the time, it felt like the end of the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, is that when singing first entered the picture? Or was there something with church even before that? Oh, sure. I know it was definitely church when I was very little, uh, just singing in the church choir and cantering at, at my Catholic church in Elk City, Oklahoma. My aunt had been one. And so I kind of followed in her footsteps. But then it was... It was definitely moving to this new town where they did bigger musicals and things like that. And I really started to feel like I want to I want to do this forever, mm -hmm. whether it would be teaching or but I want to do music. But I met the Miss America of 1981 was Susan Powell, who was a <laughs> student of a woman named Florence Birdwell. When I was five, I met her. So I kind of knew from the age of five that I, I had this weird, unlikely dream that I would also be a singer and I would also study with this Florence Birdwell. So was that the reason why you ended up going to Oklahoma City University? Absolutely. And even before that, though, we should just, you know, talk about the fact. So singing was singing independent of acting, because what exposure would you have had really to musical theater? Only summer drama programs, you know, or the musical Oklahoma. Uh, that was the only live thing I ever saw. Definitely movie musicals. My mom was crazy about them. I saw all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein, almost all of them. Strangely, not King and yes. I. <laughs> um, but Doris Day or records at my grandparents' house, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra. That was all kind of in there, but not as much as a lot of kids have, just because it wasn't that popular where I was from. I got as much as I could possibly get my hands on. So, you know, um, I, I think I was born somehow. I'm reincarnated or something. <laughs> Sometimes I have pangs for a different time that I... I was never a part of, and right. I, I feel like I must have been there. That's great. No, yeah. so, all right, so let's come back to Florence Birdwell, because anything that anyone's ever read about you or Kristen Chenoweth, she is a key player in because she taught you both. But you've said she crossed your radar, as you said a moment ago, as, as early as five. I guess what was it when you got to Oklahoma City University and began working with her that was so impactful that you would later say that, quote, she went and got up inside of me and ripped me inside out and made me a new person, close quote. Wow. I get emotional. <laughs> yeah. I think where I'm from, if I'm generic about it, which I hate to be and I hate to stereotype where I'm from, there are amazing, amazing people. But I feel like there are a lot of rules and everyone follows them and they're desperately afraid not to. I had never met someone possibly with the exception of my father, who did whatever he wanted, my, which, in, interestingly enough, they're very close. But she was an absolute rule breaker. She didn't care what anybody thought. I had never met anybody like that. And she saw, she read me like a book. She knew exactly my failures, my inadequacies, everything. And she did. She said, I'm either going to rip that open and tear that down and we'll have something at the end of it. Or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not gonna, I don't have time. You know? And I, I think that's how she, she looked at all of it. And for some reason, I really responded. Some people cowered and left her studio and went to other people. I'm not, coward's the wrong word. But I, I really, I responded. And I was like, to hell with this. I'm going to prove to you that, I, that I'm worth your time. And so anytime there was a, a fear or a, an anxiety, it was just, it was ripped away. Who cares, she would say. Or if I didn't do well, she would tear me down. Or you might as well go sell ribbons at <laughs> JCPenney's. But she was just unafraid. And I didn't know people like that. Mm -hmm. 
and I wanted to be one of them desperately. Right. She made me want to be. You asked a question about the acting versus the singing. Singing came to me naturally. She made me want to be an actress. Because originally, what you're, and I think all the way through, what you're, what you were pursuing in college was degree in opera, right? But that was not going to do much for you if you wanted to get into acting. So where did that transition happen, and how did she factor into that? Well, it's it's interesting because it's her fault. She <laughs> changed me to an opera to an opera major because she saw my voice going in that direction, which I cannot explain because I never listened to one opera my whole really? childhood. No, because nobody did yeah. in Oklahoma, yeah. East, West, you know, at the t that I knew yeah. on the farm. I was listening to country music or whatever it was, or American Songbook. But she changed me to be an opera major, and she loved the technique of singing and, and pushed me in that direction. But it was her who made me want to act more. And when I found myself up against a wall, I backed up and I said, I want to go in the other direction. I want to go straight acting. I want to go this way. And she ultimately had to support that because she knew. She knew the truth of it and how desperate she and I and we all are for stretching that muscle more deeply and ripping the, all that open. I didn't want to just concentrate on a beautiful sound. Mm -hmm. I don't even care if it's, you know, I just want to wrench my heart out a little bit, mm -hmm. and that's how she is. Well, so along the way to that conclusion, it seems like you were, that opera did serve some important purposes because what was your first trip to New York? My first trip to New York was during college. I was 21, and we were coming to look at a grad school for opera because I was still thinking that that was what I should be doing. But I was, I saw, we saw Masterclass with Audra, mm -hmm. the first show about Maria Callas, who by that time I had really learned to absolutely be obsessed with. And I thought, no, I'm not going to go sing opera. I'm going to try to be an actress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I held on onto that. I went back to college for another year and a half and finished. And I knew that I wouldn't go to, to, to a grad school. Along the way, what was the state Met competition? Oh, yeah. So during my junior and senior years, I did the, the state met opera competitions. My senior year, I did win. And then we went to regionals. That was a very interesting and important trip for me because I, I met some people in the opera world that, and I've met many that are the opposite. But at that moment, when I was just on the, on, I was just balancing on this kind of teeter tottering fence, mm -hmm. I met some people that I didn't want to have anything to do with. And I didn't want to have anything to do with the mindset of them. It made me feel uncreative and, and in, a, in that box that I worked so hard to break open. And I decided that opera, the world of opera wouldn't be for me. The judgment, the fear, the anxiety, the rules. And I wanted to like approach deeper subject matters. And so at that moment, I didn't win the regional competition. Even if I had, maybe, I'm not sure. I knew that I wanted to just move to New York. And so you graduate in 98, again, with this degree in opera, which you now don't really intend to use. <laughs> yeah. And how soon after did you move to New York? How did your family and friends feel about this? What did you, what was waiting for you when you showed up? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I, and especially from where I'm from, to say, I, I can't remember the amount of people who said, well, where are you going to live? I mean, do you have a job? And I would say no. And I would feel very uncomfortable. I didn't say it with confidence. But... I had been doing, I had actually, instead of doing summer opera programs, my last two years of college, I did summer musical theater programs mm -hmm. within my, while I was getting my opera degree. And I knew this is it. This is what I want to do. So when I moved, I, I, I had met some people at, at um, 
Music Theater of Wichita that said you can stay in my apartment for a month. We looked for a place to stay. I moved up here with three other women who are still my, the four of us are still best friends. And I just started to pound the pavement with no equity card, with no prospects. And the only person I knew was Kristen Genoweth. Really? And because of the mm -hmm. Oklahoma City University thing? Yeah. And she was not yet working in a major way, was she? She was. She was? When I was maybe a junior or a junior, she, I think Steel Pier was happening. Okay. Um, she was really starting to get her breaks. And um, she was with an agency. And my senior year, one of the, the change makers for me, so I'll always owe her everything, was that my senior year, we didn't have a showcase, my college at that time. Mm -hmm. Now they have a great big right. one. But she got about a few of uh, Birdwell students, maybe 10 of us. She, she rented a studio at NOLA Studios. She had her one agency, her two guys from her agency come, and we got to sing and do a monologue for them. And two of us were signed, and I was one of them. So you signed with the same agent that was representing Kristen? Yes. Wow. And I read one thing that suggested that when you when you then got here, you were kind of maybe because of the the skeptics about the whole prospect of moving to New York. Like, did you set yourself a deadline to make things happen? Yeah, because and, and it could be skeptics. I mean, everything in, everything in my life is probably born out of the skepticism around me. <laughs> That's my personality. I'm like, well, I'll show you, mofos. Uh, but I, I, I also was my own worst skeptic. I think I thought I play a really good game of being pretty tough. And I think I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to give myself two years and it'll be no big deal if it doesn't happen. If I don't get a Broadway show, I'm going to come home and I'm going to teach and which I would have and I still love to do. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it this afternoon, mm -hmm. but I didn't have to. Yeah. So I'm still here. Well, it seems like those first few years, if we were to, you know, break it down. I mean, the first job was actually pretty quick upon arriving, right? was my first audition. First audition. <laughs> so eat yeah. your heart out, everybody Noel, else. You know, I mean, you know, Sugarloaf, New York, doing something's afoot, the, the murder mystery musical, you know. But I had a great time. And then what were the circumstances that led up to that Broadway debut in 2000? Uh, and what do you remember about that first night? Because this was the realization of the whole reason for being here. Now you're going to stay. You met your timeline. Mm -hmm. How did it happen? Well, I, I got here, and like I said, I began to work. I did two small regional uh, non-equity productions. And then these agents that Kristen had, at first they said, you know, go to auditions. We can't really help you until you establish a little bit more. And so I did those first two. And then they got me an audition for the National Tour of Jekyll and Hyde, which was so the opposite of an opera degree. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I should say that during that time that I was doing those regional productions, I enrolled at Strasbourg mm -hmm. to, to start that, well, to continue that that drama study that mm -hmm. I, I had started in college. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing that and I got that national tour. And I will say that was a reinvention of that show. David Warren and, and Jerry Mitchell came on to reconceive. And that tour was one of the most fun times I've had in a long time. It wasn't as easy for me because I'm not I'm not a pop singer, but I played either understudy or then I moved into the Emma role, which was not of the poppiest part mm -hmm. of the show. So I was okay. When I came back, it just so happened that the, the part that I had been playing in the ensemble became available because the girl got pregnant and I fit her costumes. And <laughs> so I, without fanfare, I was moved into her part to make my Broadway debut without going too far into it. And I've been vocal about it. It was um, one of the most dis disappointing experiences of my life. 
I, it was my Broadway debut, yeah. and the show was ready to close. It, it had about six months left, and there were some beautiful people in it, but there were a lot of others who were ready to go. And I didn't get to be friends with many of them, especially beginning, because I just learned it from the dance captain. Right. And I remember the, the big night came for me to make my Broadway debut. And mind you, I'd been playing the lead role on the yeah. tour. And so I was back in the ensemble part. But one guy who was very sweet to me, our heads were down and, and the, the curtain came up and we were doing this first entrance. And the only thing that was said was he tapped my leg and he said, congratulations, pal. And that was my, that was my, that was not that I needed to be acknowledged, but my own heart. Yeah. I, I don't know. I thought that I would have a company. Yeah. Just like I had done with, with Summerstock. And that's why we get into this business, the right. family. Right. And it was hard to become a family of that. They had been there for six, four, five, six yeah, years. Yeah. There are still several of them that I've taken with me and are just beautiful. But the show as a whole was a, kind of a dark time. Yeah. My next show was Follies, which made up for it. And then, after that was the first leading yes. role, right? And yes. so another one that probably you would have hoped would go longer than it went with Sweet Smell of Success, but still big deal to be a leading person for the first time. Huge deal and unexpected. And honestly, it's, it's so funny. I, I really look back at my life and I'm really grateful for this in ways and also sort of embarrassed that I was I was really getting my, that graduate education that I didn't have in the work, which mm -hmm. I'm lucky to say, but... I wasn't ready for it, sweet smell. I wasn't. I didn't have a voice, the voice that I have now that I'm really grateful for, to advocate for that character. I don't think anyone around me really knew what she should be, because in film, the ingenue can be just beautiful and innocent right. and, and voiceless and silent. And, and they can build her purpose for her through lighting and shots, shadowy shots and things like that. And I was a stage, I was becoming a stage actress and it had to be something different and I didn't quite know how to make it that way. So I think the show, there were a lot of reasons why it didn't do well. I mean, it was nine, it was nine eleven. Yeah. We had a lot of, it was turning that beautiful kind of little arts piece into a music, Broadway musical. There were a lot of hardships, but I, th I think if I, if I could go back, I would, I would really fight for her to have more of a, a say. Well, the, the upside of it not going longer is that I believe it made something else possible, right? Indeed. I mean, it closes and, you know, you've signed for a year, so you've, you've signed a lease on an apartment and you have no severance <laughs> pay or whatever. Right. So it was scary. But then I got invited randomly to do this other arts project at Sundance in, in Utah, the lab, the summer lab, this crazy John Kelly piece. And since I was there, there was this other reading going on, and they knew I had, was a singer, so they just put me in it, and that was Light in the Piazza. <laughs> <laughs> and we should just, you know, catch people up if they if they didn't get the chance to see it. Clara, 26-year-old with the intellectual abilities of a 10-year-old, having been kicked in the head by a horse, falls in love on vacation in Italy opposite Matthew Morrison, mm -hmm. which is which is understandable. Nominated ultimately when it when it so I guess first you you came back you did Dracula I for did. a little while <laughs> then it goes into this but I think even before that gap before it started but while you were involved with it is really important because before you were Clara and before the Broadway director was chosen a couple things had to change that have reverberated ever since, right? So what started in Seattle? Seattle was uh, our first production uh, after that lab in C Sundance. I think there was one more lab, but um, 
I played Franca, the sister-in-law. You know, you had Vicky Clark had just come on board, and she changed the whole game. Celia was still playing Clara, Celia Keenan-Bolger. We had Stephen Pasquale, who was the original Fabrizio. You know, we were building it. Craig Lucas was directing it. But we were at the Intamin Theater, where Bart Shear was the artistic director and overseeing the production. By the time we got to Chicago, the casting was still the same, except Stephen Pasquale had gotten Rescue Me, the TV show, so in came Wayne Wilcox. The rest was changes here and there. But, you know, Bart Shear changed the show kind of to make it this more realistic, Italian, lush production with Michael Jurgen sets and Kathy Zuber costumes. And then we knew we had something kind of more Broadway-bound. Mm -hmm. And Adam kept working on the score. But Adam had, I think, an idea. Victoria is obviously an operatic tra operatically trained woman, too. And they had the, he had the idea that he wanted both Clara and Margaret to have that more operatically trained sound. So that's really what it came down to at the end of the day. Uh, the other thing is just to a physical thing. I think, you know, you said the age of 10. There was a huge argument between... Was it 10 or 12? Okay. Because 12 becomes puberty and 12 is sexuality. And, you know, we needed Clara to be that kind of person at 26. She needed to be feeling those feels, right. you know, even though her mind was still back in that age. 10 would be too young to um, start that kind of uh, surge in her body. So when it came down to recasting Clara, my good friend Celia, vocally and, and maybe physically and everything, they, they wanted to go elsewhere and... Uh, I think I've said it enough that Vicky and I were against that. We went to them and asked for that. When, when it was decided after almost a year and they, they had a nationwide search for mm -hmm. a Clara that Celia wouldn't be doing it and she was on to Spelling Bee, then I did sing for the part. Yeah, and I guess, though, the, the longest legacy of that show would be the fact that it was the first of now four, I think, with you and... That's it was the beginning of that, that beginning, relationship. Which do you can you pinpoint why you guys headed off? Was it just that he obviously had this belief in you from the beginning, or was there is there more to it than that? Bart at that time was 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 new too. I mean, he was making his Broadway debut with the show as well, and I think he was moving in the direction that he was being advised to. I don't know if he was completely on board with me doing it. I've been told different stories by a lot of people who, you know, I don't know want to whatever. I think that once we got in the room together, but then probably especially more in South Pacific, we have a generally a similar take on how the, the importance of telling the truth is. And we're like a dysfunctional marriage or whatever it is, <laughs> brother, sister. We ultimately want the same thing. And we're not afraid to just kind of rip each other up until we get it. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a trust issue. There's a trust uh, benefit there where we just know that we're, we have the best intentions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just a few other little follow-ups before we move on. It sounds like you and Victoria Clark have, have been very close ever since that. You know, the, the, the special thing about Victoria Clark, she taught me how to be a leading lady for the rest of my career, and I'll, I think of her every day. Celia was absolutely her investment until she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then... In the show, I yeah, mean, and yeah. in life, absolutely, yeah. 100%. But in the show, when it was time, Victoria turned and she invested 100% in me. And that was her job. Mm -hmm. But it was also her heart. And she would do it a million times over because that's what it means to be a leading lady and mm -hmm. make the show work and be strong. And she, since then, I mean, I call her mother still. And she calls me mother, too. <laughs> and we 
she's another big mentor in my life. Yeah. So after eight months, you left to do Pajama Game, which I guess was that pre or post first Tony nom? Because that's a we shouldn't gloss over that. That was post because the first yeah. was for for uh, the light in the piazza. Right. So then that fall, you know, when that was a really hard choice. I mean, extremely hard. Mm -hmm. I remember going away and trying to make pros and cons with my with my mother and mm -hmm. meeting with people, trusted advisors. It was definitely not uh, desired by Lincoln Center, although they were supportive, um, or the Rogers and Hammerstein people. Mm -hmm. But I had been with the show already since its very first, which yeah. was three and a half years prior to that. I had been working on the show or having it in my body for so long, plus everything that came to pass at that moment, at that time, it wasn't all positive because it was heartbreaking in ways with, with the change of cast and everything. So I, I will say by the time this audition for Pajama came, came up, although it was excruciating to leave that show, I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. And this is... Again, now having you've had your first Tony nomination, the, the show is nominated for Best Musical. Now you go to Pajama Game, opposite Harry Connick Jr., one Best Revival of a Musical. And I just read one thing that I've got to ask you about because after he spent some time with you and, and your voice, apparently it said something that you should sing more songs for written for men. Tita Khan said that, Sammy okay. Khan's widow. Oh, okay. Okay. So Harry helped me and, and Sony helped me make my first album, Wonder yeah. in the World. And he wrote some things I did. We put it together. And one of the songs he chose uh, for us to record was All the Way by Frank Sinatra. I mean, his version yes. of it. Um, and so we just did a piano, just Harry and me, Harry at the piano. And it's one of my favorite tracks, very simple on the album. And uh, when the album came out, Tita Khan had said that, had called me and said, you should sing more songs that are written for men to sing. And so a lot of my solo career has been focused on this idea of my man songs. Why do you think that she suggested that? I have no idea, but but my own take from it is, boy, did it help me grow a pair. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, because I was living in this world of being an ingenue when I really never was. Never. You never Even, felt? Never. Yeah. But that's what I grew up thinking I should be. You know, I had, you know, we talk about representation right, in this business. Right. I had long blonde hair, just like you know, Charlie Jones and right, Julie Andrews right. is what I should be doing. <laughs> but I, I was 29 when I finished doing Light in the Piazza, playing a 12-year-old yeah. girl. By the time I got into Pajama Game, I felt like a woman because in real life I did. And I had been pretending so long to be, you know, it's not only look innocent, but just be empty. Right. Play empty. Can you just stand there and be empty? That was that was sweet smell of success. Right. I can't because I'm a tumultuous 20-something-year-old desperate to be an actress, desperate to tear down those walls that Florence Birdwell tore down. Mm -hmm. It's like I was going back inside them. So the, the songs that are written for men in general to, to sing until things like Light in the Piazza right. for Margaret and things like that and Sondheim, you don't get a lot of finishing the hats. You don't. Mm -hmm. And I'll sing that until I'm blue in the face right. because I know what that song means more than just as much as any guy. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I guess so South Pacific would have been a nice opportunity to have a more assertive, flawed, but assertive character. And the funny thing is, so you're back with Barlett Cher, but I think it was, it seems like a joking point of contention that you still had to audition for South Pacific, having worked with them already, right? Well, that's Bartlett's share for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Bart. And the, th the people I auditioned against, the three of us, were Celia Keenan Bolger, Victoria Clark, and me. No way. That just seems, you know, mean-spirited. Yeah. But uh, 
it was basically about who the Emil would be. And so you have three different age groups there, mm. obviously. Mm. And we we found Paolo Schott, and that equaled me. Right. Thank goodness. But it's interesting you ask about about Nelly because the reason I wanted to play Nelly because in a way it's going back into the ingenue, back into the the girl who didn't know enough. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play an ingenue who was wrong. I wanted to show why she was wrong. Mm-hmm not empty and perfect and beautiful and harmless. This ingenue harmed, was harmful. And I know those women. I was raised by Arkansas Southern women. I mean, I don't want to say that they are are harmful, but I knew women like them. And Nellie was interesting to me because I knew her inside and out, and I knew she was wrong. And that was interesting to me. Well, we should just remind people, I'm I'm assuming what you're referring to is the fact that she was a bigoted racist. Yes. <laughs> she was. Thank she you. was. She was um, yes. ignorant, and I'm not going to call her innocent, but she had to learn. And the good thing about her is that she she started to learn. Right. There was change. Right. Yeah. So this was your second taste of Rodgers and Hammerstein at that point, or your first? I'm trying to. Lo- well, I my... guess uh, on Broadway it was my first. Your first. Yeah. And interestingly enough, as this show has its great run and another. Tony nomination and all of this as it went along, it sounds like that was actually the first, way back in 2006, the first seed of The King and I. What was that? Was Andre Bishop already advocating that you come back to Lincoln Center or that that, that Bart, was he maybe talking to Bart about it at that point? Um, you know, I do think that, that Andre Bishop always wanted to do King and I. He had that in his head that he would do it, and it was getting to be 20 years later pretty soon. I'm not sure I would have been their first choice, to be honest. At that um, time, yeah. I think there might have been other discussions, maybe mm. even with Vicky. Mm which would have been fantastic. So I think that, let's see, I'd left South Pacific. I had gone to do fun and silly, nice work, but then maybe Frank. I, I think over the years, then I, I kind of maybe earned my my keep or whatever enough to be considered for something like the teacher, you yeah. know? Yeah. So that, again, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but then it happened. Sure. But at the end of South Pacific, going into nice work, if you can get it, I guess, yeah, there was actually a break in there because that's when I had my first child. I was just going to say, were you pregnant, though, during uh, yes. the run? During what? the swimsuit, during the cartwheels. I was. Oh I, I, I did it until I was five and a half months pregnant. And were you not showing enough to keep it a secret, or you just, how did that For work? For the first three months, I kept it a secret from everyone, because right. with your first, you can. <laughs> during the fourth and fifth month, it was ridiculously embarrassing. <laughs> I still have people saying, yeah, I came during that winter, and something was off. She was. She, she must have been hurting a little bit. Yeah, but... Kathy Zuber wouldn't let me wear shorts. It was pretty embarrassing, but I I did it, and I felt great being physical that way, so I just did it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was around then, after shortly after that, that you did Far From Heaven off Broadway? Um, No. Actually, between South Pacific and Nice Work, I did King Lear. Oh, King Lear. Right, right, And then I think, then I did Nice Work, If You Can Get It. Right. And then during Nice Work, If You Can Get It, I got pregnant again. Yes. And I did that until I was about five months pregnant, <laughs> which was also crazy. I was dancing all over the stage. Right. And then uh, and then right after that, unfortunately, I had, I had was committed to Far From Heaven. And I went to them and I said, by the way, I'm I, I unexpectedly. I mean, we had been trying. <laughs> right. but I'm pregnant. And they said, we still want to go ahead with it. So I did Far From Heaven. And professionally for them, I feel guilty that I kind of changed the show in ways that it shouldn't have, but I was like a beached whale playing a 1950s housewife that's supposed to have it with that tiny waist. Right? Oh my gosh. And moving along chronologically, I think what was interesting was that in 2014, you finally did something that I guess you had been trained to do, but had never really done professionally, which was perform opera at 
the Met, right? Yeah, it finally came back, it came around. I used to say when I left, when Mrs. Birdwell set, ripped up the grad school application for, for opera and said, you got to go follow your heart. I, but we both said, maybe I'll get through the back door someday. Right, right. And it's kind of what happened. I was literally the back door because I was at Lincoln Center. Bart Shear was starting to direct opera. And I said, you know, it was my dream at one point to sing opera. And so he started saying, well, let me let me get you some auditions over there. So from one stage door through the parking garage to the next at Lincoln Center, I did. I auditioned for I sang on the stage for a couple of things. And the, the one that kind of felt right was the, the, to slowly get in was Mary Widow because it was an operetta and it was in English. Right. And I couldn't believe it. It was a dream come true. But then once I did that and I sang without a mic and I thought, OK, OK, I'm not it's not as daunting as I then I was hankering for more, you know. But does that I mean, it seems like it's a totally different skill set than what you do the rest of the time. Singing 4000 people, no mic, giant place. Is it a different type of even just projection of your voice or I, I read one thing though where you were saying you you just sing your heart out in a theater and they can adjust their mics it's not like you're modulating down mm. anywhere so is no that right? and I think I think you depending on what kind of singer you are your sound people will 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 enhance or or take down and you know it's it's that's something that's a miscommunication opera singers think that we we don't even sing on music but I I there is a difference. There's a huge difference in kind of the the amount of effort that you give. When I was on that stage, it was much more daunting to sit out in the house at the Met and watch. Once you're up there, it's like any other it's it's any other stage, and you you think, oh, I know this world. This is right. my world. The only the real big difference for me is because mics allow you to look at each other and use each other and perform together as a team or you know your cast members. Opera at the Met is presentational, so the acting becomes different. Uh, you really don't look at each other at all. Everything is out, and it has to be because yeah. you have to get the voice out. Right. So the the uh, the physical body, you only do it twice a week, and you're exhausted. Mm -hmm. It's a much bigger, larger than life kind of presentational art form, and and vocally, you go ahead and and use all of your resonance and everything you can to to get your sound out. And um, on Broadway. You just don't necessarily have to. Right. So this brings us up to another thing that was in 2014, which I, after seeing this, I've been preaching the, I've been your biggest believer and cheerleader since Bridges of Madison County. Not that the other stuff prior to that wasn't amazing, but I thought this was the greatest thing I ever saw. And this was a musical version of the movie. And just to remind people, if they haven't seen the movie, Italian immigrant living in Iowa with her husband and children having an extramarital affair. And your first contemporary character, oddly enough, right? I mean, it seems like prior to that, I don't think there was one. No. And that comes back to your feeling like you're out of a different time maybe. But again, Bart Cher, original score, Jason Robert Brown, but written for your voice, from what I understand. And I guess the last thing we should say to set it up is that it's like that rarest of things. And one of the things that I interviewed you about was the fact that an original score written in the tradition of the sort of great Broadway scores like Rodgers and Hammerstein and mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. that are seem to be like almost extinct at this at this point in original. So just how did it come about? How did, you know, was this Jason saying, I want to write something for your voice? 
He, he called me and said, and you know, I should give credit, let me just say, uh, Scott Frankel and Michael Corey wrote originally for my voice for Far From Heaven, you know, Ricky and Gordon, I did my my life with Albertine, you know, so there were some things that were more operatically bent that were written. But when Jason came to me, having been more of a commercial and contemporary writer in his career and not as operatic, he said, I want to write my opera. And he meant musical theater opera. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to write it for you. And I want to write this on your voice. And I'm going to I got the Marsha. Norman and I have gotten the rights to this. So before we had a score or anything, the three of us went to producers and tried to sell the idea, you know, and of course they were naming all these guys that would play Robert. And But when then Jason sat down to write the score, he wrote, it just flowed out of him so easily, this kind of uh, rural uh, country sound. So our first workshop, I remember thinking, well, that's not, I can do this, but that's not really what I'm t thinking of. Mm -hmm. So then he went back to the drawing board and he, Francesca was from Italy. There's this kind of classic, can be, there's this classical sound from her. He came back with that first art, that first song, To Build Myself a Home. And it literally changed my life. It just was, it was the first time I opened my mouth to sing and didn't think about the road mapping of where to place anything. I just sang from my absolute heart. I miss it every day, honestly. I miss that show because it, it you're so lucky if you have even one of them or half of that in your career. But I'm thinking, well, is it too soon to revive it? Because <laughs> I, I, and he did. He wrote it for me, and I'm so grateful to him. And so now I think, well, what else are we going to do? Well, I I want to explain to listeners if they're getting a sense that there's a little sadness surrounding this production, just like what actually happened. So, hundred performances, and then the run ended for I guess a variety of reasons, which I remember for the first time interviewing you around that time, and it was. It was a devastating thing. You could tell where, essentially, first of all, the Tony nominating committee didn't do anybody any help by having the option of having a fifth best musical nominee and then not doing that, yeah. which would have yeah. hurt nobody and could have prolonged it. But also just the the general the idea that I, I actually want to read back something that you said when I spoke to you on the phone less than twenty four hours after the final performance. You said, "quote." I have loved this more than I've ever loved anything in my life professionally, and I've made the decision within the last 24 hours that I will never do anything that I don't believe in again, no matter to what end. If I do 20 more of these and they close within a day, I'll be more proud of that than being in any commercial success. And if that means that I don't make much of a living, then so be it. I didn't get in this to be rich. I got in this because I love it, close quote. But it was very emotional. You were very emotional, and I wonder if you can just explain why even to this day it has that effect. Wow, that's so interesting. I'm glad you read that. It's like, it's good to know how visceral I was feeling when I talked to you because I, I was, I remember. I also have to point out that I was just postpartum through that whole thing. So I was incredibly <laughs> emotional and heavy and also right. just raw, which I think is a beautiful thing mm -hmm. to, to, making, to be making art when mm -hmm. you're raw. I feel that way and it actually did change me. It changed me as an artist. It made me feel like every reason I got into this, going all the way back to tearing down those walls around me, was so that we can be authentically feeling people. And that's how that show felt to me. Not necessarily even the subject matter, but just singing in a way that feels true and pure, acting in a way that feels challenging and real. The show had problems in certain ways, you know, I know it, but there was something about it that just felt really right. And and no matter how much of a commercial success it wasn't, 
the, the impact it's made on people because I still hear about it every day mm -hmm. of my life. I still believe that if I go forward and don't have any anything like it, I'm so lucky that I had even one of it, yeah. you know, one piece of it. Just one other quick quote from that interview that I thought was great. What was found inside those theater doors wasn't something you could put on a billboard. It's not just about the affair. It's about a woman's choice. I think we made a very interesting new piece of art to take in. When people came, they always left surprised and usually full of unexpected emotion, close quote. So just a year later, though, you didn't have too much time to think about that because just a year later was Anna in The King and I, which also won Best Revival of a Musical, your third show to do that. I don't know if anybody else can claim that. Fourth time working with Bart Cher, again, after lighting the piazza, South Pacific and Bridges. Third time after lighting the piazza and South Pacific at Lincoln Center. Another revival. And so is that why, even though you had to maintain an accent, dance in a 45-pound dress, and work with a million kids, uh, little kids, you've said it was easy. I couldn't believe when I read that that was your adjective that you used, but you said maybe, again, just relative to Bridges or something, but why did that one go down as easily as it did? Because I think it's really well constructed, and I feel like Anna is... It's so funny, because you'll ask anybody kind of what, what you might get accolades for, mm -hmm. It's not always the one that felt really difficult and flawed and human. Um, it's it's the one that people can really just. It's easy for them to to admire. Right. And Anna is written. If you, I mean, if you do it right, I mean, she's not a savior. She's not a white, you know, savior who comes in. No, no, she's flawed, and I wanted to make her flawed and needy of certain many things too. But I also wanted her to make wanted her her to be absolutely moral and and just and that felt easy to play because that's what I want to be mm -hmm. and I think she made me a better person and, and uh, singing those songs and and wearing those dresses it, I don't know it, that is that is, does feel easy for me because it's kind of planned out for you something like Francesca which felt easy in its own way in another way but we're like gluttons for punishment actors we <laughs> we feel until we rip ourselves apart we don't feel like we're doing anything fun. Mm -hmm. And I didn't necessarily have to do that for Anna because I, I, it was easy to believe in everything, every choice she got to make. Francesca made choices that are not easy to believe in. Right. And uh, I had to find reasons to make those choices and believe in them. Who was your model for Anna? Parts Florence Birdwell, mm -hmm. parts women that I've known, parts everything I would like to be in, you know, as far as a mother or a teacher or as a human. We should say it was not Deborah Carr or anybody like no, that. No, because I didn't see that. <laughs> I didn't see it. Um, no, it wasn't. I didn't want it to be, I, I've never wanted anything to be. The only time I ever um, might have really, really imitated was I learned My Fair Lady so quickly to do it with the New York Foot, like in seven days. Right. And anything Julie does, I'll probably give a, a, a nod to her right. because why mess with anything that's with something that's not broken? <laughs> right. And the fact, though, that you are, you know, the the upside of Bridges is it's original. You you one of the upsides I should say is that it's original. You put your own stamp on it. You're not being compared to anyone else in a musical version of it. Mm -hmm. With <laughs> you're leaving out Meryl Streep in the movie. Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ouch! Come on. Yeah. But with the King and I, it's been around for so long and so many great actresses. One of the less famous ones, I don't know if you remember, we got 
to yes, sing to you, yes, Patricia, Patricia Morrison, yes. who uh, no longer with us, but Very that was hard. special. But just is that daunting when you do a revival and you've done a lot of them to, I guess most people probably haven't personally seen prior Broadway incarnations of the ones that you've done, but it, just the idea that that there is something preceding you, how does that feel? People ask me that because I've done these revivals and you think, oh, to be compared, to be compared. I think of it more as to join the ranks. Mm -hmm. And so it's a compliment to me. I feel really, really, it's like it's like Lily, and I know we'll, we'll talk about yes. that, but it's like Kiss Me Kate and, and comparisons I don't have time for, but being part of a thing that someone else that I really admired was part of, that's a huge thing for me. And I, I'm growing old enough now and hopefully wise enough, I've just had another birthday, that instead of you know, if you're a child and you were left out, which I can definitely say, instead of reacting to that or wanting revenge by being a committee of one and being the top, mm -hmm. I think you have this long, lifelong desire to, to be proud of being a part of and then to be inclusive yourself and not exclusive because you know how it feels. Right. So doing a revival and being compared or put up against is part of that kindergarten yeah. mindset. Right. But actually being part of a team who have created the show and kept it alive of all these women. When I was in London, they had Haley Mills and, you know, a bunch of people come up on stage who had played it. Oh, that's great. Elaine Page and yeah. Robertson, Liz Robertson. And I mean, I wept right. when I turned around and I saw Haley Mills. Yeah. Because I grew up with Parent Trap right. and, and, you know, Pollyanna and... I just, I didn't feel like, wow, you know, I don't know if I did it as well as she did. I felt like, oh my God, I share something with her now. That that was only a dream. Right. That could have only been a dream when I was 10 years old. The other enduring legacy of, of your King and I experience will be that after this was the sixth nomination in 11 years, there had not even been a performance that wasn't nominated in that span that you'd given. And finally you won. Having always been asked every year when you get nominated, is this the year? Is this the year? You go there, you get excited. It can be... Was it exciting? Was it a relief? Was it? How would you describe that night when I rewatched the the moment last night just to be fresh? I was there when it happened. You don't normally have that sort of a eruption in the room where people are just very happy for the person that it's happened. Period. But but about time, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, <laughs> you never want to be like, come on, why, you know, what's the what's everybody's problem? Right. No, you you. If you're a person like me, you just say, oh gosh, I guess I'm. Not, I need to work. I can keep working, keep getting better. You know, it was never easy. It's never like a shoe in. You know, I remember when when Light in the Piazza came out, Vicky. Nobody was ever going to touch Vicky, or you know, no one's ever going to touch Audra. Right. You just can't fight it. Right. And of course, that year. Kristen was just shining over here in this very place in on the 20th mm -hmm. century. And she won. Every, I didn't even get a, a drama desk nomination that year. I wasn't even at the awards ceremony for that. And so I thought, so even though I was proud of what I was doing and I'd gotten the, the prior nominations of the, um, I thought, okay, but, and then that happened. I thought, well, just, it's not, this is another year right. and, and whatever, you're still working and you keep telling yourself as, as, much as you're trying to lie to yourself, you know, it's about the work. <laughs> and um, and it, and it, was, and it right, is, right. but I just didn't expect it. I, I, I might have uh, thought maybe a 50-50 chance had I been at the Drama Desk Award. Right, right. But when that happened, I thought, it's, it's not your year. Relax now. Right. And I remember just kind of twi you know, twisting my, my hands, more so because my parents were there again, I was here again, and it was another, another one of those things. And at the, the sixth time, you just your heart just starts to get a little, you know, 
The one prior to that had been painful, just to even be there when my show had closed and everything. Yeah. And, and so I don't know, I was feeling a little bit like, I got to stop doing this to myself. <laughs> I'm done, right. you know. And so when they did say, when Neil Patrick Harris said my name, not only did my body just kind of freak out because I then got the flu, like the worst flu in, in the world the next day, <laughs> I think I've just, it burst a bubble. It burst a, a sense of stress in me that was a relief. And I hate to say that. I hate to say that. But it was less about any kind of like my ego acknowledgement. It was about the pressure I had put on yeah, myself yeah. with with the people who love me and feeling like they were feeling bad for me. And I wanted to relieve them of that. And But I was also proud of my show. But it's it wasn't ever, I didn't feel necessarily like a shoe in either. So you feel a little guilt. <laughs> and Kristen had said early on in that in that year, she had said to me, I want this to be yours so generously, not necessarily that it needed to be mm -hmm. or should have been. So wh for whatever reason I got it, I will be forever grateful. But there are always with anything, and you can ask me on any moment that there's been a high, there are always complications with it. Mm -hmm. Well, so in that case, what could those be with, with winning a Tony? I have that horrible personality that I want, 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 want. And then when I get, I feel incredibly guilty for it. Or you win. And, and I think a lot of winners will tell you this. You win and then there's an expectation you put on yourself. Well, then I better be really good in everything that I do mm -hmm. because people expect it or that I should be or I should never fail again. Mm -hmm. I can never. Or what is it? Because I won, this means I should be doing these things. You know, I should... I should never take a part in Schenectady, you know, even though I really love the play, mm -hmm. you know, because I, you know, you put all these weird pressures on yourself that you talk yourself out of, mm -hmm. but those are those first thoughts you yeah. have. So you, you think back to when you were doing something's afoot at Bridgeport, Bridgeport, downtown, whatever <laughs> theater, um, where you just open your mouth to sing. And it was, there was nothing but joy. Right. There was no business aspect to it. And I kind of feel that now because that bubble was burst. And so you think, well, now I don't have to be so much pressure about right, it, right. you know? So there is that joy in it sure. too. And there's just the joy that, yes, I want a Tony. Yeah, so you can't and I worked hard for you. it right. for 20, over 20 years. Right, right. So it's good in it and it's good and it's, it's complicated. And yeah. I think everything in life is that way. Sure. All right, this brings us to Lily, the actress who plays Catherine in the musical version of The Taming of the Shrew in Kiss Me Kate, which you are part of the revival right now at studio 54 for people that how long do they have to come and see you is there a june 30th june 30th yes so get on that folks how did this one come about and why did you decide to do it i know that i was reading an article where you talk about with with the revival if you're going to do it there's got to be a reason to to get involved the show you know has to have a a modern meaning yes. for you to give it down. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, I, I can only be in charge of what I do in a show and, and, and being in charge mean as a collaborator with my director and choreographer and lights and sound and costumes and everything. But I can make choices as much as I can with the ability of the, the estate to allow us to make changes. And I can't oversee the entire production. So I know what we have here is a pretty classic production of our show. I didn't even realize that until it all comes about, that we have a pretty classic. Because in my heart, I wanted to rip 
Kate and Lily apart. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take all the misogynistic things that the men said and either highlight them or cut them. And I think we did that in many ways. Some of the things that used to just be really funny are now highlighted as a, ooh, that's gross. Mm -hmm. And then the things that were really horrible, we cut. Oh, Amanda Green came on to help with the script. Mm -hmm. The estate didn't let us change a lot that we wanted to change. I think we did as much as we could. And I think every night I go out there with the intention, the story doesn't work as well unless Lily is still stuck a little bit in old ways. Yeah. But Kate was where I found my freedom. And I think it really represents where we are right now. Just because a woman is angry and has things to say does not make her a shrew because you need her to be. It, al it also means that she has a voice. And that's how I see Kate. Just as an aside, one thing that you're, I think, maybe referring to just out in the world since your last Broadway show, I think it's all happened, is the whole, like, Me Too thing. I don't think that was going on even as recently as King and I. So question I've had is I spent most of the year covering film and TV. Mm -hmm. We certainly know it was rampant in those areas. Yes. I haven't heard that much about Broadway, that doesn't mean it wasn't happening or ha isn't happening. But in your, as you say, like roughly like 20 years of being around here, mm -hmm. is it just underreported in the media or is there, is it more of a community where that just wouldn't, somebody wouldn't get away with it for as long? That's a great question. I mean, I think there is a lot of talk about it, but I think that in theater in general, we don't get as much press. I mean, it's just not as people in the middle of the country don't know about who we are. And But there are a lot of victims of a lot of things, absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of women in this community right here, writers, directors, producers, trying to make a difference, trying to get more voice. You're right that we haven't had big stories come out. I don't have big ones to tell. I have a lot of small ones. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of choose how you're going to deal with those types of things. I also would be lying if I and 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 putting myself in in kind of that that place if I didn't say that I feel like I've been often supported in many ways, especially by men in this business who, are maybe um, homosexuals who love women. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, being a leading lady in musical theater can sometimes be a very, very supported thing. Directors like Scott Ellis and composers and that I've that I've worked with and and straight ones, too. Yeah. I mean, Jason and, yeah. and, you know, so I Scott Frankel and Ricky and Gordon and, and all these kind of beautiful men. But we definitely f heard the cry uh, because we all do in 2016 we still live in this this anxiety ridden place and you know you you want to do your part and the thing about that people ask you a lot if you're an actress that they'll say something like well i've never seen you do something like this or well that's an interesting side of you i've never seen it well what they don't realize is that as actors we've always been who we are but we don't we have to wait for someone to give us that chance so without it being public i've made some big decisions in my life not to work with people like that producers that 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 have um and to not do things that might have been great artistically or whatever because I don't want to work with certain yeah. people and that's just my choice and that's exactly why I'm here today you asked me why I'm doing this show right. because I want to work with nice people yeah. good people and that's what I, I was felt like I made a choice not necessarily for the show and I'll say this vocally I chose between a decent producer and an indecent one mm -hmm and on the shows of my choice this year. And I'm, I made the right decision because yeah. I'm, I'm supported. I'm in a happy place. I'm, if nothing else, making people laugh. Right. 
we have our show is problematic in today's world because it's all about misogyny. But I'm trying to give the ladies a voice and beautiful songs too. I mean, the ones that I think so in love and some of those. It's got a. It, it's got a. Does a does a song affect your own mood? Like, you know what I'm saying? sure. Yeah? Sure. And I mean, you know, my mood affects the song. I mean, that's singing for me is, is that, is that wrenching thing I'm talking about. And when I'm not singing from a place of emotion, when I'm thinking technically it, I fail myself every day. If I just use what I'm feeling that day to sing my songs, I will tell a true story. And if I was not doing this for a living, sometimes I think, what would that version of, what would that be for me? Would it be therapy? Mm-hmm. Would it be, you know, I used to jog all the mm-hmm. time or would it be yoga? What, what would it be? Would I become an addict or something? But I need to feel deeply and heavily all the time. And that's what this does for me. And I don't care what it is, as long as I'm performing. And I think, you know, not to go on a too sad a place, but I think we, it's, it would be nice to note that there is almost a built-in emotional aspect to the show because where did you, who did you first see Star in it? I saw the last revival, which was Marin Maisie, and I, I have her with me on the stage every night. The first I mentioned the, when I first came to the city, I saw Masterclass, which showed me Audra, and mm-hmm. then one of the other shows that I started seeing when I moved here was Ragtime, mm-hmm. and to see those two women. Audra and Marin, they sort of became my heroes. They were singing kind of classically, mm-hmm. and but, but ripping it out as actors. Right. And I thought, I want to be like that. And Marin has been so generous to me over the last 20 years. And then we shared the role of Anna and the King and I, and she was such an inspiration. And if I do nothing else with this production, I just want to pay homage to, to her and to that her, her own performance of this. She was very strong. The last thing is just the one minute of rapid fire. The first thing that occurs to you, um, is there a number of shows per week other than eight that you would prefer? Six. Six? Mm-hmm. Which would you lose? I would make a long weekend. So okay. I would miss, I would lose the tu- Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, I would just do it with seven. If they would just, you know, I would lose the Tuesday. <laughs> right. Because I, I love a Sunday matinee. Yeah. But yeah, I'd lose one of the matinees and the Tuesday night. These days, I'm sure you're the first one offered most things on Broadway, certainly. This being the case, what's the main thing that will make you decide to say yes to something? If it's contemporary. That would just because you're hungering to yes, do that. a play. Yeah. Yeah. And so actually that's the next one. Would, are you interested in a non-musical straight play? More than anything. Really? Yes. Why do you think? Because I can. Yeah. And no one's, oh, I was, when I said that people say, why are you doing those things? Or I haven't seen this. You, you cause you don't get the chances. Right. right. I want a chance. Right. So uh, I just have to keep myself free cause I keep signing up for yeah. musicals. <laughs> well, do you know what your next project is already? Well, I am going to go to Tokyo for four weeks to do the King and I one really? more time oh, with cool. Ken. Um, it was always part of the plan. Yeah. Yeah. The third stop. Yes. Um, and then lots of concerts. And then I don't know. Does it? piss you off because it pisses me off that people who primarily work in film and TV who are working such fewer hours, getting so much more money, not grinding it out in the way that you guys do here, Mm -hmm. like just the inequity of all of that. Does that, I just get annoyed as somebody who comes in every year, swoops in around this time of year to see what you're all doing. It just doesn't compute to me. It doesn't. And we're like, we live like athletes and we have no off season. And I mean, I'm not going to say woe is me because I dreamed of doing this and here I am. But yes, it's very frustrating that, that I work 
so hard mm -hmm. and I have a hard time supporting myself sometimes I'll be honest and then but we're still expected to wear pretty dresses yes. and 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 look look like we're stars or whatever but you're but, saying even you who I think every other Broadway actress would like to be right now you're saying that to this day it, it can because of the economics of the whole way it works sure. it, it can be hard sure because i've i i have some commercial shows where yeah. i'm making a really great living right. thank you many many producers yes. i'll say thank you and i do concerts but when i'm then in a lord contract where i'm not doing concerts or anything on the side right we have a hard time sometimes yeah. so you, that makes you want to go do some television and film <laughs> and you have i mean you have but i i think that they need to somehow that's got to balance out one day or, or people in hollywood need to i guess it's an age-old problem but they need to come and check out what you guys do a little more because it's just crazy there's anyway last thing what is the biggest misconception about you that you would hope people let's set the record straight right now we talk about my insecurities here um <laughs> i think i assume that people assume that i have everything so easy all the time that everything comes to me just easily i, I honestly i can't tell you how hard i've worked in my life for every single thing i've gotten i've had people accuse me of you know, sleeping my way to the top. Jesus. Never done that once. I've had, because of, I guess, I don't know, because of the way I look. I, I think I also assume people think that I'm not very smart because that's also in general what you might think. And I've, I should just say you gesture to blonde. I guess, you know, because you, you know, stereotypes. I, and I'll make one point about that. Mm -hmm. When I came out for Kate, I have a blonde wig as Lily. And I, I asked for a blonde wig for Kate because I want to have blondes be strong mm -hmm. and smart. And it was cut. And now I have a red wig for Kate. Red is funny. Red is smart. Can be smart or funny. Mm -hmm. I was I was red as Anna. Right. Brown is smart. Right. Brown is mysterious, simple. Francesca, of course, she was Italian, but there are blonde Italians. I haven't played a blonde since Nice Work, if you can get mm -hmm. it, because blondes are younger and love interests. But smart, older single ladies aren't blonde. And smart, strong women aren't blonde. And I've, I've been playing by those rules for too long. I see it too. Mm -hmm. I put on the red wig and I said, yeah, she's a fiery, strong lady. And I had the blonde wig on. And I said, oh, she's, she's an ingenue. Right. She's kind of sweet and pretty. So we have a misconception of people by the way they look. And I think my frustration is 0% compared to what other people go through. But I, I would think that people, I would want people to, to know that I have a little bit more depth than what they might think. Well, you are the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, I really Scott. appreciate it. <laughs>